Hi, I'm Perry, and you're listening to The Beauty Brains. Welcome to The Beauty Brains, a show where real cosmetic chemists answer your beauty product questions and give you an insider's look at the cosmetic industry. This is episode 308. I'm your host, Perry Romanowski, and with me today, all the way from California, Valerie George. Hello, Valerie. Hi, Perry. On today's show, we are going to answer questions about what's up with Riversol and what are our thoughts on laser treatments for people with rosacea. Is Retin-A Micro as good as Tretinoin? Can niacinamide and ascorbic acid be mixed? And does fragrance dry out your hair? This is a whole uh, cacophony of different types of subjects, huh? (laughs) Yeah, wow. But before we get to that and before we get to the beauty science news, Valerie, how's it going? Uh, It's going good. I had a total, uh, call it old person moment a couple days ago. While you were out raising funds to help research for children with cancer, I was bent over, stuck in bed because I pulled a back muscle last week. Does that happen to you frequently? It's never happened to me. Simply bending over to the ground to pick something up and I got stuck a spontaneous giant knot formed on half of my back. I'm not even kidding you. And I had to go to the doctor Monday to uh, get some work on it. Yeah, it was not good. But uh, the good news is I can walk again. And (laughs) I'm sore, but I'm not in writhing pain like I was. And uh, basically what happened is I pulled a muscle. That's it. Wow. Well, you know, that's the sort of thing that I did notice as as I uh, got older, like I would lay on the couch wrong and then my back would hurt for a, a week. <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah, welcome I'm in the club. Aging. You know, I'm going to be 40 in September. So, yeah, welcomed oh. me a little early. Hey, you know, uh, I sent away my little Kit Kat for summer camp. Oh, what's he going to do? I Well, he's my, my sister-in-law is watching him and... Um, this is the first time we've been away from him since we got him. And, you know, it's this must be how people feel when they send their kids off to summer school or something. Because they're like, is he going to be okay? They had another yeah. cat, and they didn't get along right away. So we'll see how that, that goes. Oh, Ted had an attitude problem, huh? Yeah. No, the other cat was kind of a bit of a bully. <laughs> my kid, my cat was perfectly <laughs> oh, fine. Oh, poor Ted then. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, of course, right? Ted did nothing wrong. Uh, well, you just need your sister-in-law to send photos every day, and you're going to be just fine. Yeah, yeah. But that did think it'll be right. it, You know what? It will be nice not having to wake up at 4.30 in the morning. Cause it can't, so <laughs> he gets hungry at 4.30. Yeah, talk about morning, a vacation. So. Yeah, exactly. Well, all right. We ready to get into some beauty science news? Yeah. You know, I don't know why I picked this one, uh, only because it caught my eye because it talks on a topic that you uh, cover pretty well. But uh, the Moroccan oil hair care company mm-hmm. introduced a coral colored depositing mask. And I thought this would be a good opportunity for me to just ask you about what makes this product work. So according to this uh, article, they had a, Moroccan oil has a collection of 10 
curated and commitment-free shades uh, leave your hair moisturized, blah, blah, blah. But they added cor- coral as the latest blush orange shade. And they have all of this stuff. But but basically, what what's this product? How's this thing working? Yeah, so this is a your basic color depositing conditioner. So it has a conditioner base. You know, in this case, they call it a mask. Right. And if this did not have any color to it, it probably would just be a really nice conditioner for your hair uh, featuring the argan oil, which I'm not a huge fan of argan oil for right. different reasons, but uh, you know, Moroccan oil's foundation is, is based on argan oil. So it's probably you know a really nice, beautiful, deep conditioning treatment. Well, yeah, I mean, they have behin trimonium chloride, and they have uh, dimethicone and amodimethicone. So, yeah, pretty standard uh, conditioning ingredients. Yeah, pretty standard stuff. And what makes this color depositing is it has what I would call direct dyes present in them. Direct dyes are dyes that you can directly see the color of. No chemical reaction needs to take place in order for it to color your hair. These dyes are affinitive to the hair fiber. Hair is usually negatively charged, and these dyes are usually positively charged. I'm guessing they have some positively charged dyes in there. And the positively charged dyes will stick to the negatively charged hair and stain the hair. This temporary interaction is what allows Moroccan oil to call this commitment-free, as you just mentioned. It's not a permanent color. It really is temporary, and the next time or over a couple washes, this color will leave your hair, especially coral, something that's really, really light orange anyway, um, is going to be temporary. It's not going to be a permanent hair color. And really, it's for light blonde to medium hair, so it's probably very faint. Yeah, and uh, you know what this reminds me of? When there was that brand Finesse, you know, the conditioner, and they talk about Yeah, yeah, what happened to them? You remember the the jingle? Sometimes you need a finesse, sometimes you need a lot, or sometimes you need a little finesse, sometimes you need a lot, yeah. right? But the whole notion there was that the conditioner would go to your hair where it was damaged. Yeah. Right. It'll go to the damaged section of your hair and give you a lot of conditioning. <laughs> That's how conditioners work. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Brilliant marketing. But apparently that's how this dye works too, right? It's cationic and it'll stick to the negative sites on your hair, right? Exactly. Which reminds me of a test that we used to do for hair conditioning called the Rubin dye test. Oh, yeah. And it's like the Rubin dye test is like a a red color or something. And so you could condition Mm -hmm. hair and wherever there were the conditioner didn't stick or something the the rubing dye would stick and so it would be different colors on different parts of the hair so must be the same thing right yeah it's similar uh you wouldn't want to yeah. use a rubing dye for for dyeing the hair let's say but it's a really good colorant to look at to help see where you're going in the hair fiber when you're developing actives something like this though if you had brown hair you're not going to make your hair blonde right No, again, this is very temporary. It's deposit only, so it's not going to change your natural hair color. In order to see these colors, your hair has to be a little bit lighter, and the only way you can lighten your hair is through applying a different product like bleach or some kind of persulfate-based composition that's going to get your natural pigment out of your hair. Very interesting to see these color deposits. I always wished uh, somebody could make a color depositing shampoo that really left a significant amount of color, but that doesn't really work that well, right? It's very tough, very tough to do. You can get a lot of pigment, but yeah. you know, there's a maximum, <laughs> pretty much. 
Well, it's always a problem when you're trying to make your hair dirty while you clean it. Okay. <laughs> yeah. All right. Let's move on to the the lawsuit section of our beauty science news. Did you see this lawsuit? I did. A proposed class action lawsuit was filed against a company called Wars and Alps because they claim their products are natural, but the plaintiff says no, they contain synthetic ingredients. They can't be natural. Yeah, I saw this. You know what I found most interesting about this? First of all, it's uh, Ors and Alps is owned by, you know, a, a mid-sized to rather to larger-sized company in the industry, uh, S.C. Johnson, uh, more famous for their uh, household products, right? Yeah, yeah. I think household when I think of them. But apparently they bought this uh, Ors and Alps natural line and... It's a deodorant line, I believe. So they say natural deodorant. And uh, what I find most interesting about this is that they mentioned some chemicals specifically in the lawsuit. And some of them are, are not unexpected. They have dimethicone was called out, uh, yeah. which, you know, there is no dimethicone tree out there. So <laughs> that's obviously a synthetic chemical. But they also called out other things that are commonly found in all kinds of natural formulating uh, or brands that call themselves natural. Caprylo-glycol, potassium sorbate, sodium benzoate, uh, you know, these citric acid, they, they say. Uh, they said that since they're using these synthetic ingredients, uh, they're misleading consumers. Wow. Well, you know, I guess that goes back to the definition of what does natural mean? There's not really a consistent regulation around it. And I think unless we have some kind of standard regulation, it's going to continue to be confusing to consumers. Now, I agree, something as obvious as dimethicone, you know, obviously that is not a natural material or something or, or could you argue it's a natural material because the starting point is quartz for all that or, or silicon material. So I would argue it's as natural as, you know, synthetic caprylo-glycol. Ethyl hexylglycerin, for example, comes from the petroleum industry. So, you know, could you say that's natural because petroleum is used to be dinosaurs? So I think really without some kind of definition, <laughs> right. it's going to continue to be confusing. Yeah, and I think... Some companies benefit from that. So there is some laws laws going through uh, Congress here in the United States looking to define natural, but those have been pretty slow. And I think specifically because if somebody de- if the government defined natural, well, all those natural uh, certifying groups, you know, are kind of out of business. <laughs> so, yeah. So uh, they don't really want a definition of natural, and I think small companies kind of want to be able to say, oh, we don't do what the big companies do and we're natural and they're not. And if you don't have yeah. a definition like that, they're able to. Uh, it'll be interesting. I, boy, if this if this lawsuit goes through, that's a lot of ingredients that uh, are currently in a lot of natural products that won't be able to be used. I don't think you can make functional products anymore. Well, I think this would set a precedent for lawsuits to continue against other brands for sure. Yeah. One thing I do like is there is a standard. There is the ISO 
uh, the International Standards Organization that tries to create definitions so that people can follow them and all have some kind of globally harmonized consensus on what something means. And they actually have tried to standardize natural through creating a naturally derived claim. So it's ISO 16128. Maybe some people have seen it on products. I list it on all the ingredients for my website, uh, Simply Ingredients, where I sell ingredients and I want people to be educated on what percent natural ingredients are. But the ISO 16128 Mm -hmm. has tried to create this standard for naturally derived. So instead of saying something is natural, you know, for example, decil glucoside, you can't go up to a tree and squeeze that out, but you can get something from the tree like coconut oil, let's say, and you can put that through chemical processing to create the surfactant. So that is taken into consideration with this ISO method. So if more brands followed that, it would be great, but it's not a legal requirement. Again, it's just a, a standardized guideline that an organization has tried to create. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see where this goes. Well, like all of the lawsuits we hear about, I'd love to stay updated. Oh, right. <laughs> we'll do that. Why don't we move on to some beauty questions? Our first one comes to us from Mo. Mo says, hello, BBs. We're like uh, BB guns, right? Um, (laughs) I have a question for you. My skin is troubled, rosacea mainly. I wondered if you have ever heard of Riversol by the doctor out of Canada. I have heard from a few people that it worked well, but honestly, I've spent so much money over the last years on rosacea treatments that I'm afraid now. And can you also tell me your thoughts about laser treatments for people with rosacea? Thank you. Valerie, this is a topic that you have looked into a bit, right? Yeah, well, as someone who has rosacea myself, I know it can definitely be very frustrating to have a flare-up or to have constantly red inflamed skin and try to exist basically anywhere. I, you know, I'm super self-conscious of my red face and I actually have an appointment in a couple weeks with my dermatologist to address the progression of, of the disease. So, you know, I'm not in a good position there. So, so I have looked into a lot of stuff and really at the end of the day, this is a, a acute skincare line, a beautiful website. I really like the, the way it's laid out. I like the information that's offered. I like that for every product they have listed scientific papers that back up the science of why they included specific ingredients. I find that really interesting. But at the end of the day, maybe this helps manage your symptoms of it. These are not drug products. These are cosmetic products. At the end of the day, you have to be under the care of a dermatologist and using the prescriptions they're advising you to use. Yeah, these these might be uh, nicely formulated products, but they're not drugs. Exactly. And even though it's formulated by a dermatologist, you know, Dr. Rivers Saul or Dr. Rivers, sorry, Dr. Rivers still has to follow the regulations. And so, you know, they've done a great job of developing these products with sensitive skin in mind. And I believe they could be appropriate. But again, go to a dermatologist. Don't waste, you know, money on the skincare. Talk to them about what you're using in your routine and and get an appropriate prescription, get an appropriate routine recommendation. And they can also talk to you about those laser treatments you're asking about because you can use lights and lasers to treat rosacea. 
to get a considerable reduction in redness, to get treatment for the blood vessels that are appearing on skin, and they can help manage some of the symptoms that you're experiencing from that. They'll also determine if you're a good candidate for prescriptions or if you're a good candidate for laser. In past conversations, I'm not a good candidate for laser, but I'm hoping that somehow has changed when I go to my dermatologist in a couple weeks, but really a medical doctor is the best place to get um, treatments for rosacea, which is a, a disorder of the skin that needs drugs and needs uh, professional hands. Skin care can not make it worse. It could make it worse. You know, it's just really tough to say. And I would say I would spend the money at the doctor. For sure. Uh, on that laser treatment, according to the American Academy of Dermatology, they say most patients are going to have about a 20% redness reduction. Some patients have a bit more, but so you would expect that you're like most people, so a 20% reduction in redness. I don't know how. That doesn't feel like a that. whole lot. <laughs> I mean, I don't want any redness, you know, 20% right, right. doesn't seem exactly. fair. Oh, man. That's, you know, that's kind of the, the problem with uh, problem with some cosmetic claims too, right? Is like, yeah, you can measure a difference and it could be 20% or 50%. But if you got rid of 50% of the wrinkles, you still have wrinkles. Like, it's, you know, yeah. it's like. Redness is still redness, you know. Right. What a consumer wants when they have redness is to get rid of all the redness. And here you're talking about a 20% difference. So, uh, you know, that for some people, that's, hey, that anything's good. But, you know, that's what you can expect. Yeah. So, Mo, to answer your question, I'm sure the products uh, in R- the Riversol brand are very nice. You know, if they're working well for people, maybe it's because they are gentle and aren't aggravating the skin condition and definitely check out uh, whatever is going on with your skin with a dermatologist. Okay, our next question, we're gonna drop in an audio question here. Hi, I know you're skeptical about microencapsulation and I was wondering if that extends to Retin-A micro and if you could talk a little bit about how that works and if you think that Retin-A micro is less effective than just regular tretinoin, thank you. How did she get the impression that I was skeptical that we were skeptical of microencapsulation? Huh? Gee, I don't know. <laughs> well, Perry, have you heard of Retin A Micro? Uh, not before this question, I had not. Uh, but I did learn that Retin A Micro is actually also a tretinoin, really. Yeah, it's just a different form. They have microencapsulated it, right. which the developers of this drug have said helps control the release of tretinoin with the encapsulated technology, which also helps improve photostability even in the presence of benzoyl peroxide. And by controlling the release of tretinoin, it is led to believe that it is less irritating than regular tretinoin and therefore more tolerable. Yeah, it's interesting. So, and they had some studies that show that uh, 98% of patients found it to be more tolerable so that's just like a you know an opinion question it, it, this isn't like good science or whatever but it is good mark it is good copywriting you know good claims or whatever but well drug companies have marketing departments too exactly <laughs> exactly but so they they claim that the in- micro encapsulation helps to reduce the irritation 
but they don't they don't do like a control versus a placebo or, or placebo versus or at least the they're test. not telling us about it. Right. Well, I think if they had done that, then they would have would would say that. So this is just a. <laughs> Hey, try this, and oh, they didn't complain. So, but maybe it's maybe it's helping. Uh, what I will say is, like, I have been skeptical of micro encapsulations in the past. One of this is is primarily that is due to if a product gets rinsed off, right? So, if you had micro encapsulation in a cleanser, for example, that that's not going to have any effect. So, it's either going to be uh, you know, broken open during manufacturing, or it's so strong that it doesn't break open when you're using it, especially when it gets rinsed away. A product like this, however, gets put on your skin and it stays there. It's not like you wipe it off. And so I could see the capsules breaking down over time if they stay on your skin and then having still having an effect. So, you know, at least for what it's worth, I think you can make microencapsulation work if it's a leave-on product in some extreme cases. So I, I wouldn't be surprised if it did work. Yeah, and at least with drug products, they, you know, they've done a lot of stability work. They have a lot of stuff to prove. And one of the things they have to prove is that the amount of tretinoin being delivered into the skin is the amount being advertised on, on the tube. So at least there's that. Yeah, and also that this one... You know, tretinoin can be just delivered from uh, a cream, and you don't really have to worry about it breaking down. So yeah, if it did leak out, you know, it's still going to work. So. Yeah. Well, thank you for that question, Kendra. All right, our next question is an audio question. Hello, Beauty Brains. I have a question about the interaction between ascorbic acid and niacinamide. I am aware that niacinamide converts to its potentially irritating cousin nicotinic acid in acidic solutions, and notoriously unstable ascorbic acid degrades quickly in basic solutions. My question is, do either of you know how quickly that occurs? If one were to prepare an anhydrous formula containing these two ingredients with the resulting pH of 5 upon the addition of deionized water, would you receive the benefits of these powerful ingredients if you were to reconstitute it just prior to using it? If it takes even only a few hours for these ingredients to degrade each other, then theoretically you would receive the benefits of each for at least that duration, correct? Interesting and technical question. Wow, I love it. Yeah, so have you heard of this, Perry? This whole notion that ascorbic acid and niacinamide complex to form a yellow compound and a potentially ir irritating cousin, nicotinic acid? I have heard of this. Uh, I am skeptical that this is going to happen when it's mixed on your skin. So if you put two products on, uh, so if there's a step in between, I, I don't know. I'm skeptical that, that those conditions would make this happen. But what did you find out? Well, this whole notion of the two not being good partners for each other comes from a 1963 study that was the most uh, you know, famous study, I should say, there were studies prior to that, that found that when you sure. mix ascorbic acid and niacinamide together, you get a complex where one molecule of ascorbic acid forms with one molecule of niacinamide, and it creates a yellow compound. And this actually happens instantly, at least in the study, that's what they yeah. noted when they mix them together instantly, uh, the solution turned yellow, and they proceeded to look at what compounds were being exactly created. 
Now they did know that this happens at a pH of 3.8 and it is incredibly pH dependent. So I'm guessing if you did prepare an anhydrous formula containing those two ingredients, and then when you made it hydrous, the resulting pH was five, I would guess that it's probably not too much of an issue. Yeah, yeah, I would uh, I would agree with that there. Uh, so if you did if you did make it now, if you did do a, a water solution uh, of both of these ingredients, there's a potential that that could happen. But what I do want to point out is just because these two things complex doesn't mean that niacinamide is converting to nicotinic acid. Yeah. Um, it complexes with the niacinamide itself. I think also it's important to note that this is not a permanent reaction. It is reversible. So should this be happening, you theoretically could just change the pH and get the benefit of the two compounds again. I don't think this is as big a concern as you might have. Uh, honestly, honestly, you know, I'm a, I'm a active ingredients a skeptic here. Uh, I would, <laughs> Although niacinamide works, but... It, I, I would agree. Now, a niacinamide works, ascorbic acid can be shown to work, but... To what extent does it work? Is it one of those reduces redness by 20% where it actually has a lab measurable effect, but it's not a consumer measurable effect? And so what I wonder, is niacinamide really having a consumer perceptible effect? And does the ascorbic acid have the consumer perceptible effect? And if they work you know, complexing, would that affect it? Would you notice any difference? Because these effects are very, very subtle. So uh, so this is why I don't think it's as big a concern. Especially if you're not at these reaction conditions where that happens. Absolutely. Okay, uh, actually, and he did ask you, actually put a PS, he said, have you ever had, considered having a dermatologist on as a guest? Have we considered that, Valerie? You, you know, we have, but, uh, you know, our format of the show just doesn't really, you know, allow for guests. We get requests all the time and, you know, we're not against it, yeah. but, you know, usually people have an agenda when they want to be on our show. They want to promote something they've done and that's just not really our style. Yeah, maybe someday, uh, but not not yet. So we're not against it, but yeah. we haven't done it. And our final question of the day, Valerie's got to go. I almost hear the music playing. Laura says, will using perfume in your hair dry it out? What do you think, Valerie? No, I don't think so. Any volatile compounds in the perfume are just going to evaporate off your hair, and you should be fine. It's no different than using one of those old-fashioned pump hairsprays. Exactly. I would agree with that, and I would agree that that's the music playing, and we've got to go. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. If you get a chance, please head over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. That's going to help other people find the show and ensure we have a full docket of beauty questions to answer. And speaking of questions, if you have a beauty question, just record it on your smartphone and email it to thebeautybrains at gmail.com. Also, don't forget to follow us on our various social media accounts. On Instagram, we're at thebeautybrains2018. On Twitter, we're at thebeautybrains. And we have a Facebook page and a TikTok. And a TikTok. Wait till we have. Oh boy, we are going to be TikToking. And also, the Beauty Brains are on Patreon. If you want to support the show and keep us ad free, go to Patreon.com/slash The Beauty Brains and subscribe at any level. Well, thanks again for listening, everyone. And remember, be brainy about your beauty. Thanks, everyone. Gotta go. 
Kittens!